Luke chapter 1. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened, and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbours were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard, heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come up from heaven will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. Well, all of us are getting ready for Christmas, even some more so than others, but we're in that zone, aren't we? And it's so easy to find yourself in a Christmas carol service and think, crumbs, It's really Christmas time, and I'm spiritually not ready. It's all well and good to be physically ready, and it is a lovely thing to have all those traditions in place and all that food ready. But all too often, year upon year, we can get to a Christmas carol service and think, I haven't actually prepared myself spiritually to think about what it is to celebrate the miracle of the incarnation of God becoming man. And that's what I want us to do this evening, and to do so by going back and thinking about the birth of John the Baptist, which might sound like a strange place for us to land for one Sunday evening to prepare us for Christmas. But as I was reading through Luke's gospel during the course of this week, it struck me in ways that it's not struck me before, just how many threads Luke is pulling together here through Zechariah in ways that I think actually for us as a church family is incredibly timely. What I want to show you this evening is that Zechariah's song is weaving together themes from the Exodus that we're looking at in our morning services. He's weaving together and showing us in the person of Zechariah and in preparation for his son 
the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ that we were thinking about last Sunday evening. And he's showing us what it means to know there is hope and light in the darkness, as James was helping us to see on Wednesday night as a church family. All of that is wrapped up in Zechariah's song. So before we get lost in all of the busyness of all the carol services and everything else, I want you to see what Zechariah is prompted to sing for. And I hope and pray that it will be an encouragement to us to sing as we get to our carol services. Now, before we can understand what is going on with Zechariah's song, we need to put his life in a little bit of context. So if you have a Bible this evening, it'd be really helpful to have your thumb in Zechariah 1, and we'll be there most of the time. But also, we're going to be going into Exodus a bit. So if you want to get ahead of the game and put your thumb in Exodus 3, and then with your third hand, you can write some notes if that is what you are doing. Uh, you go back into Luke 1, and we meet uh, Zechariah in verse 5. He's busy in his life as a priest. His day job was in and around the temple. Um, but he is an older man. Verse 18, he describes himself as an old man and perhaps more thoughtfully describes his wife, Elizabeth, as uh, well on in years. In other words, neither of them are thinking they're going to have a child. Until when it's his lot, it's his turn to be serving inside the temple, you go back to verse 13, and an angel appears to him and says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. Which, when you're an old man and your wife is well on in years, is the kind of thing you're not expecting. And Zechariah was so stunned by it, so Un, like completely unfounded by it. Actually, he responded in disbelief, which meant, if you look at verse 20, that from that moment on, he was struck silent and not able to speak until the baby was born. Go down to verse 57. That's the context for Elizabeth going into labor. Every husband feels useless when their wife is in labor. Zechariah felt even more useless because he couldn't even say anything comforting. He can communicate properly with his wife. But thankfully, they are surrounded by all of these family and friends who from the moment of her birth are rejoicing, or his birth, I should say, rejoicing in the baby's birth and celebrating with them. But then the key question is, what are they going to call him? And we get to his circumcision on verse 59 which is not a normal practice for the Jews. You look all the way through your Old Testament, babies were named when they were born. And you go into non-biblical Jewish records, and this practice developed, but you won't find it in the Jewish records until about the third century. This is the oldest record that we have of a changing Jewish practice that boys would be named at their circumcision when they were eight days old. Then the question is, well, what are they going to name him? And the crowd are rooting for Zechariah, which, again, isn't the way that Jews would normally name their kids. We spent a little bit of time in the States. So many kids are called mm, the second or the third, and then they're called Trey, and on and on it goes. That wasn't what the Jews did. But maybe there's good reason for understanding why the crowd thought Zechariah would be a good name for this boy, because Zechariah is no ordinary priest. Zechariah is met with an angel of the Lord. 
they know enough to know that this baby is not only a late-in-life miracle, but this baby is going to be used in some incredible ways. And, and perhaps that's why the crowd think, we should name your baby Zechariah, because of everything that the Lord is doing through you, Zechariah. But Elizabeth says, no, he's to be called John, which is odd, because nobody in the family has got that name, and so they go to Zechariah, who can't talk, but they say to him, who should we call your son? And he grabs his tablet. Hey, long before Jobs came up with the idea. He grabs his tablet and writes down, his name is John. Not he shall be called John. Not we've decided to call him John. His name is John. This name isn't to be debated and discussed, it's to be declared. Because this is the name that the angel has told Zechariah to give to his son. And with this confirmation, verse 64, Zechariah's mouth opened, his tongue set free, began to speak, praising God. We're going to get to the song in just a minute. What I want you to see before you get there is the excitement that is building in the crowd. And we lose a little bit of that in the uh, NIV translation. But if you happen to be reading from the ESV, you look in verse 65 and 66. I want you to listen to the word all, the repeating word of the word all. Verse 65, and fear came on all the neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? Everybody is talking about what is going on here. Everybody is stunned with this late-in-life miracle. Everybody is knowing that something special is going to happen through this boy. Everybody knows that Zechariah has seen an angel of the Lord, and so much so they're in fear. We, we probably, in our English now, would be better saying something like awe. It's not fear in the sense of scared. It's wonder in the sense of everything that is unfolding before their eyes. All the neighbors throughout all the hill country and all who heard them were buzzing in excitement. You get to verse 69, and the question is, just how special is this baby going to be? Everyone knew that, sorry, verse 66, the Lord's hand was with him. God of heaven and earth does not have a physical body as we do. Description of hand, the Lord's hand, it's a metaphor for his power, both in creation and in redemption. And if you go back into the Old Testament, that word is used as a description of God's power more than 200 times in the Old Testament. The vast majority of those references take place in the Exodus. And we've seen some of them very recently. If you go back to Exodus chapter 3, we saw just a few weeks ago in verse 19, God says to Moses, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him, so I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. God's hand was with Moses. We're seeing that Sunday by Sunday. God's hand was with the Israelites, and God's hand clearly was with John. All of this excitement is building, and it would have been the easiest thing in the world for Zechariah and Elizabeth to bask in the limelight of them and their son. 
They lived a long life just quietly serving in the shadows. Faithfully doing what needed to be done whenever needs arose. And after a lifetime of seemingly anonymous service, everyone now is focused on them and their son. But look at what Zechariah does. Zechariah, who I'm sure his heart is full to bursting with the joy of being a dad. His heart is overwhelmed with wonder at what his wife has been through in bringing new life into being. But his focus is praising God. And we see that even in his son's name. Why did Zechariah and Elizabeth insist that his name was John? Simple answer, the angel told him to call him John. But what does John mean? The angel didn't just tell Zechariah and Elizabeth to call their son a random name that didn't happen to be any name in their genealogy and history. Yohanan in Hebrew means God is gracious. It means the grace of God. It, it struck me as I was reading this that the very first record of anything being written in the New Testament is that God is gracious. Isn't that a lovely thought? The very first thing that is written down in the New Testament is of someone saying that God is gracious. And that's the theme of Zechariah's song. It's a really simple three-part structure. He was a priest. He knew that you preach everything in three parts. Very simply, I haven't got a PowerPoint tonight. The God who is gracious, that's the beginning of all three points. The God who is gracious, firstly, keeps his covenant. Secondly, prepares his people through John. And thirdly, saves his people through Jesus. That is Zechariah's song. And all of it comes out of the wonderful truth rooted in his son's name. God is gracious. Now, we're not going to do a detailed study of the whole song tonight. I just want you to pick up on some of the key details in this. So point number one, verses 68 to 75, the God who is gracious keeps his covenant. Zechariah begins with praise. In fact, if um, you read around these kinds of passages, you might have come across an unusual description of this section called the Benedictus of Zechariah. That's because they translated praise into Latin as Benedictus. And so they've got the Benedictus of Zechariah. That's not a strange description, but I think it's a Latin description of what this passage is all about. And it's praise focused on who God is and what he's done. And what really struck me this week is what bookends Zechariah's praise. Verse 68, Zechariah explains that God has come to his people. And you go down to verse 78, he looks forward to, to the rising sun, which is either referring to Jesus himself or the hope that comes with Jesus. He refers to that as coming to us from heaven. All sounds very Christmassy, doesn't it? We know that God's in heaven, and we know that at Christmas, we remember that Jesus came into the world. So it makes perfect sense for us to see this description of God coming to us. It's 
like a key theme in so many of our Christmas carols. The first one that we sang this evening. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. But for all the times that I've read this or heard this passage read, I have never clocked, and maybe it's just because I'm very slow, that this description of God coming to his people is overflowing with Old Testament weight and meaning. It's not just a New Testament description of the incarnation, of God taking on flesh. That's what incarnation means. It's a description that Zechariah, as a priest of God in Judaism, would have known was full of meaning from the Old Testament. Now, if you flip back again to Exodus 3, I want you to see one example of this that we read together in chapter 3 and verse 7. God said to Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. If you remember what we saw in that series, God sees, God hears, God knows, is concerned about. Verse 8, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land and on the Lord's promise goes. If you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Moses wrote that in Hebrew. When they translated it into Greek, it's exactly the same word where God says, I will come down. You look through the Old Testament, it appears more than 160 times. It's a great description of what God did in the Exodus. God came down. You get to the New Testament, there are only three references to that exact same word that Luke uses. And two of them are at the beginning and the end of this song. The word doesn't just mean that God came down like he came down the stairs from heaven to earth. It means more than that. It means not just that God visited, that he made an appearance to see what was going on. This word carries the idea of God's oversight. We get the English word group episcopacy from the Greek. It's that idea of the government of God, of his overseeing of all things, not in a passive sense of being somewhere far removed and just watching the updates on Twitter. In that sense of in his oversight and government of all things, God breaks into his world and acts to personally save. Now you bring all of that Old Testament meaning into Luke chapter 1. Yes, Christmas is about God coming down in the person of his son. But it isn't only that he comes down. It's that he comes to bring about his oversight, his government, his rule, such that his kingdom would come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He does all of this. What does Zechariah say? He's come to his people and redeemed them. Saved at great cost. That's what redeemed means. He's come to do so not just to deliver a physical nation, an ethnic nation. I think when you look at all the description of what Zechariah is celebrating here, yes, there's the salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, but verse 74, 75, it's to rescue us, to enable us to serve him 
without fear. Same word that Matthew was talking about this morning. Serve meaning to worship. It's to do so in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Verse 77. It's to give us forgiveness of our sins. That is what God has done by coming down. He's come to restore what Adam and Eve lost in the garden, where a relationship of peace was turned into one of fear, where lives that could be lived in a loving obedience to God were ruined and now couldn't live in obedience. And now here comes a rescue that enables God's people to live a life that is in service of him without fear in the holiness and righteousness that was left. And none of us deserve any of it. So what's the reason? Why is God gracious? It's because he promised to be. That's what he swore to his forefathers. It's the covenant that he made. It's the oath that he gave to Abraham. And all of that covenant expectation, all the way back to Genesis 3.15 with the promise of the one who would crush the serpent, all the way through to the promise of Abraham, to whom God gave the wonderful promises, all the way through to the birth of John the Baptist, whose birth would precede the birth of Jesus Christ himself. All of that hope is rooted in the covenant-keeping nature of a God who is gracious. Yohanan, John. Zechariah presses that home again as he looks forward to his son's calling. There's the second point, verses 76 to 77. The God who is gracious prepares his people through John. He prepares his people through John. If you were at the prayer meeting on Wednesday, um, James Soper was showing us, reminding us, God had not spoken to his people for 400 years. Four centuries without a prophet. Until John. Zechariah says, you will be called a prophet of the most high. At long last, God is going to speak to his people again. But the hope doesn't rest with John. He's just a forerunner. He's like the motorcycle outrider in a massive presidential procession. He's just there to make the path clear so that the presidential envoy can follow. And that's what's really emphasized. In verse 76, 77, it's literally that he would prepare his ways to give his people the knowledge of salvation. The world didn't belong to John. The people don't belong to John. John can't even save himself, let alone anybody else. The whole focus of his entire ministry is to point towards the only one who can save. And that's John's whole life. His whole life is that humble life of service that is to be completely fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you think about who his dad was. Zechariah has not just taught humility, he's lived humility. John saw in his home what it was like to be completely fixed on praising God and not drawing any attention to yourself, which no doubt made a massive impact on his growing up so that by the time John gets into his public ministry, what is it that John famously says? Jesus must become greater. I must become less. 
Now, Zechariah knew that although his son was going to be the first prophet for four centuries and that he would prepare the way for the son of God himself, his son's privilege was to point the way to Jesus. And if you're a Christian in this room this evening, you and me, we have the same privilege today. None of us get to do it on the same enormous scale that John the Baptist had. None of us are in that exact moment of redemptive history where we stand just before the Lord Jesus Christ comes. But all of us have the same privilege and responsibility to go and tell our neighbors and our friends that salvation is found in no one else for there is no name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So if you happen to have a spare seat next to you, I want you to look at that seat and think, which of my friends whom I love, my family members, who don't yet know Jesus, would I love to see sat in that seat next year, praising God with me? It's not my gift or your gift to make that happen. But it is our opportunity to invite them to come to hear of the gospel that they need to be saved by. That they would know the name by which they can be saved. So I want you to think very specifically as we come to this Christmas time, not just, well, I hope somebody's going to invite somebody. It would be nice if there were a few non-Christians with us. Which of your family and friends and neighbors, which of mine, would I want to see sat in our seats hearing that Jesus can save them from their sins. That's what Zechariah reminds us of in this final section, verses 78, 79. The God who is gracious saves his people through Jesus. The because, in verse 78, the because is massive. Some words should be underlined in your Bibles. This would be one of them. How is it possible that the most high God, verse 76, could welcome sinners like me and all of the people that we want to share the gospel with this Christmas. It's because, verse 78, of the tender mercy of God. It's a beautiful description of the greatness of God's mercy. Perhaps you can't imagine that you could be saved or that your family and friends who aren't Christians could be saved. The tender mercy of God is literally translating the bowels of God's mercy. Again, God doesn't have a body. It's not describing his literal bowels or his literal heart. It is trying to help us see the deep-seated core of the grace of God that is at work drawing men and women to himself. His tender mercy for undeserving sinners like me comes from the very core of his being, which leaves us wondering, well, how is it possible for a God who is just to also be so gracious? And the answer is Jesus. Zechariah knows that. He knows that what is coming, that his son would be pointing towards is a rescuer who would come, who would be the one to bring forgiveness. God doesn't just wipe it away under the carpet, leaving you fearful that perhaps he might remember and then judge you for it. He has dealt with our sin. 
by sending his son to the cross to pay for all of it, which is why this picture of the rising sun is such a beautiful description because with that rising sun comes an eternal dawn. Now, I know many of you don't like the wintry months. Many of you are like my grandpa. My grandpa used to start counting down the days to midwinter's day from sometime in about July. Just longed for that point when the wet, dulled, dark, cold nights would start to change and the days would become shorter. The, da- the days would become longer, the nights would become shorter. But you know, one of the blessings of the winter months is you get to see more sunsets. Sunsets and sunrises. Because you're awake. And after a long, cold night, the beauty of seeing the rising sun will bring a smile to your face as you wake up tomorrow morning, if there is one. In Zechariah's day, that darkness wasn't just a description of the darkness of the night. James helped us see on Wednesday, it was a reminder of the darkness for a people who for 400 years hadn't heard from God. But it's more than that too. Because this darkness isn't just a description of what the Jews were experiencing at the time. This darkness is a description of what all of humanity has experienced ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And we have been born in our sin and have chosen to live in our sin. And know that we are not right with God. That is the darkness. That is the shadow of death that's being described. I was uh, praying this morning for the ways in which uh, the modern medicine and all of the provisions that we have in the West today have have in some sense um, cushioned us from what our forebears would have known just 100, 200 years ago when they would have been surrounded by a reality that so many of the children who were born would die in infancy, that so many young adults wouldn't reach their retirement plan. That would have just been their regular experience. But I don't think that's the only thing that Zechariah is talking about. Yes, he's got physical death in mind. They're living in the shadow of death and the darkness that is going on. But look at what the emphasis all the way through the passage. It's for forgiveness from sin. It's an emphasis on salvation and the mercy of God. I I think Zechariah is describing a darkness that is more than the physical death of our mortal bodies. I think he's reminding us that until we come to know the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ, we live under the shadow of an eternal darkness. The Bible is really clear that if we live in our sin... And do not turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. We will die in our sin. And when that happens, you don't just disappear or rest in peace. You face the eternal judgment of God. That is what it means to live in darkness and in the shadow of death. Which is why the rising of the sun is such good news. Because in Jesus, the light of the world has come. In him has come one who was born with all of the eternal blessings of God, such that as he lives the perfect life we couldn't, we trust in the one who has defeated death itself. And not only has he come to 
earth from heaven. But he is the one who has gone through the darkest of all darkness by taking our sin in our place. Now that is what we are celebrating this Christmas. That is the joy that Zechariah knew as he knew that his son was preparing for someone greater. That is the joy that we want to celebrate with all of the people that we can at the big interactive nativity and at the carol services and in every other occasion, personally and as a church family. All of that comes with the great hope, verse 79, that he who rescues us from darkness and death will guide our feet into the path of peace. That's what was lost in Eden. The beauty of all of that relationship that Adam and Eve enjoyed went from peace to fear because of their sin. And now with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, fear can be turned back into peace. Not perfectly. It won't be perfect until the new creation. But right now, you can enjoy, and all who will trust in Jesus can enjoy, the peace of God through the light of the world. That was Zechariah's song. And it is our calling this Christmas to sing with the same expectation and joy that Zechariah had. It's our calling this Christmas to tell everybody else we can about what this hope looks like. That for all that they live in fear, for all that they live in... I was with Beryl Wigram on someday this week, and she was telling me that she was describing how one of her carers shared with her that she had a fear of death. I reckon most people have that fear of death. You know what Beryl did? Our faithful sister, she wrote down a number of Bible passages that explained to this dear lady the hope you can have in Jesus so that you need not fear death. Because Jesus has defeated death. That's Zechariah's hope. All rooted in the truth that God is gracious. All of that comes out of the name of his son. Johanan, John. God has been gracious to many of us. And if you will trust him, even this Christmas... He will always be gracious to you.